This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good afternoon. Uh, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show on 3CR and I'm your host, Erin Jones. We're covering a few different topics today. Um, I'm pleased we're going to start off with, um, we've got a couple of live guests in the studio who we'll cross to in just a minute, uh, but after that we're going to be talking electric vehicles and infrastructure and charging, uh, and then we're going to be talking to Louise Page, who's a campaigner down in Western Port around uh, some of the uh, action that AGL's trying to get in terms of, of gas plants, but we'll go into a bit more detail. So we're talking about a few different things today, and I'll look forward to your company during the show. Um, first of all, I just want to do a big shout-out to all our donors. It was Radiothon for us last week, and we're really pleased to say that we reached our total. So thank, a big thank you. It's really important that we keep independent media on the air, and a uh, big thank you to everyone that... Uh, made a made a pledge, and if you haven't actually paid your pledge yet, we'd encourage you to get that done, and especially to get it done before the 30th of June, so that you can uh, get all the paperwork, so that that's a write-off on your tax, should you have made a donation over two dollars. But in the studio with us today, we've got Pat Simons from. Uh, yes to Renewables campaign and Rachel Linsky from Sustainable Cities. So welcome guys. Thanks for having us. G'day Aaron. That's okay. And we're going to talk a couple of things today. Um, we're going to talk about the logical thing that needs to happen after the powering of trams is going to 100% renewables and that's the powering of Melbourne's trains with renewable energy. How's the campaign going? Yeah, so we're just getting started. As you mentioned, um, Melbourne's trams are going to be powered by solar, which is really exciting. So that was an announcement um, that came down the line last year from the Andrews government. Um, so basically, they they formed a partnership with um, some renewable energy developers, Yarra Trams, and the state government. Um, and there's there's two um, you know medium to sort of large scale solar farms that are being constructed in the north of the state right now. Um, so the work is still underway, so we're not quite there yet in saying that Melbourne's trams are now powered by solar. Um, but basically, they've they've signed the contracts and construction of the solar farms is underway, um, which will basically cover the electricity usage of the tram network. Yeah, and that's great. And, I mean, it's really important, these sort of projects, because whilst we're talking about trams that are predominantly in the, the CBD and the, and the you know inner suburbs... The actual construction of the solar farm is going to provide a lot of jobs and, and use of uh, materials, etc., in the regions, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that this is just a bit of a no-brainer. It's just mm -hmm. such a win-win. You know, our tram system, it shouldn't be getting energy from fossil fuels. If we, if we want to take the idea of clean, zero-emissions transport seriously, you know, trans public transport's already a better choice than the car. Um, because it's just much more efficient. But if we're powering it with renewable energy, it, it takes that low emissions transport and turns it into zero emissions. But at the same time, we're creating regional jobs in renewable energy. So that's just really exciting that that decision has been made um, to do that with the tram network. Uh, so we think that the next logical step 
is to do it with the train system. If we can do it with the trams, we can do it with the trains. In terms of energy use then, um, I think the train network is a, is a bigger system. Mm-hmm. So in terms of a, a multiplier, how much bigger is it to power that yeah. system than the tram system? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the Melbourne's train network is actually the second largest energy user in the state after it's, it's second only to the aluminium smelter in Portland. Uh, so what that means is if we're going to be building renewable energy, new renewable energy projects to power the train system, it's actually a pretty significant amount. Mm. So we're still doing the research on this to get the exact numbers, but um, just in terms of a rough calculation, um, I think based on 2015 um, uh, consumption, it's around, f- I think it's 450 megawatt hours, um, at, you know, annually um, coming from the train network. Um, I have to double-check that um, as I'm not an energy expert and I get other people to give me the the advice. But um, in terms of what that might look like in in building a new renewable energy project, it's it's probably somewhere around the size of 150 megawatts to 200 megawatts of wind power, depending on... Um, yeah, how how good a project it is and how windy the spot is. Yeah. yeah. And so to give us a scale then, the, mm-hmm. the, the couple of projects that are going to be powering the tram system, yep. um, what's the t- technology? Is it wind, solar, a combination? Yep. How's, how's that looking? Yeah, comparison? so it's, it's just solar power for the mm-hmm. trams. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like an internal offset in a way. So we, because the tram system and the train system plugs directly into the grid, you can't say you can't flow the electrons from the no. solar farm to the train system. But I think we can say that in kind, this is a pretty clear representation. Yeah. Um, and by using the purchasing power of the tram or the train network to build new renewables, we're actually hastening the transition mm. to renewables over time. Um, but for the, sorry to answer your question. Um, for the two projects, I think it adds up to around 75 megawatts of solar, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably more than enough to cover the demand of the train, uh, the, the tram system. Uh, but yeah, the train system is just a much larger energy user. So mm-hmm. to be able to do that, we would, you know, we would want to see, um, you know, large um, renewable energy producers, whether that's wind or solar or a combination Nation. of renewable energy and storage. Mm-hmm. Um, we should be using any type of contract with a renewable energy provider to really build the best new technology in renewables and storage so that we can actually power these large energy users with clean energy. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of a perfect combination because when you've got a really big energy user um, like that, you know, a big transport system, it's it gives such confidence mm. to the developers because they know, okay, we've got a locked-in... Um, because I take it that it won't be a facility that's owned by the government or will it be or was it going to be open or is that kind of still up for debate about how it looks? Yeah, I think it's uh, at the moment we're just, we're putting the idea out there, we're engaging people in the community and we're just building a bit of excitement around this idea. So how exactly it's done mm-hmm. is is a bit of an open question. I think that's something, you know, that's something we want to research and, and get really clear answers on and that's part of why we've launched a crowdfunder to support the campaign mm-hmm. so that we can actually go out there and get those very strong evidence-based um, answers yeah. to these questions. Um, but, you know, sorry, can you repeat the question that you, again? It was. Oh, who knows? Pat? Oh, that's my, okay. my, my, we kind of just jump around, yeah, but I think people can get the sense. Yeah. Well, going back then to the tram, yeah. because that's a project that's that's in place and it's rolling yeah. along. It hasn't, it hasn't completed yet, but yeah. it's going along. So those facilities that are being built mm-hmm. to fund, to power that. Um, infrastructure. Mm-hmm. What's the model of that looking like? Is the government yep. owning that infrastructure, or okay, have they yeah. contracted that out? Yep. Yeah. So it was it was a bit of a partnership between the state government um, facilitating this relationship between Yarra Trams and <clears throat> and um, a renewable energy developer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the the project is owned by the um, the the renewable energy company. But they, I think that was facilitated by a contract with the state government, and now there's directly a contract with Yarra Trams. Yeah. Um, so the way that we... There's a few different ways that it could work for the train system. It could be a direct contract with Metro Trains, 
um, the state government could run a renewable energy auction in order, you know, to drive down, get the cheapest price for this kind of project. Mm. Um, they could build a publicly owned um, generator, um, which would also be fantastic. So there, there's a few different options. And, mm. yeah, we'll be talking to, to all different parties to see what is the best way yep. to make, you know, turn this vision into a reality, basically. Yeah. And I think it's a really important kind of thing to do that because mm. um, by actually demonstrating that, okay, this is the way we can do it and, and make sense. But mm. from a commercial point of view, you know, a probably multi-decade contract with a government is kind of a perfect thing for for most commercial organisations thinking and really bankable from mm. a financing point of view. Yeah, absolutely. So whether whether you have a contract with a, um, a private company or with a government through some sort of renewable energy auction, you know, it's those long 20, 25-year contracts that gives that stability of finance. Mm. And... Yeah, without that, there you know it's really hard to, to go and finance new projects. But once they're there, they're they're pushing prices down. They're delivering mm-hmm. cheaper prices for whoever it is that's buying the energy. So you know we we are really keen to get the figures on you know how much is it costing um, you know Metro at the moment to um, their current electricity um, arrangements we're not too sure exactly who their contract with it is with mm. uh, but that's the kind of information that we really um, are keen to get a hold of yeah. um, one interesting um, yeah piece of information is that the state government actually covers the cost of the electricity usage of the train network even mm. though it is a private company that is running the train network so mm. you know we, we do think that there is an important role of, of the public um, you know, the state government to, to have a strong role in this rather than this just being a purely corporate campaign. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a bigger sense. And it's really important, I think, for these big players because these type of big projects can really put downward pressure um, on, the, on the whole kind of idea of what's going on and, and mm. you know, get those sort of, sort of things off the ground. Mm. So. And- it kind of goes two ways in in saying that every time we build these, you know, um, renewable energy projects, we can be, you know, powering even more trains, putting more trains on our lines, and and increasing the capacity of our network as Melbourne keeps growing. And and similarly, every time we put a new train on, we've got to have the energy to power it, and we mm. want to ensure that that is clean mm. energy. So it kind of creates this um, momentum that says that you know we've got to build more. Um, public transport, but we've also got to make sure that we're powering it in a clean way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, at the moment we're focusing on the metropolitan train network, but mm. if we're successful in this campaign, you know, you know, there, there are people making decisions in the coming years about do we build high-speed rail? So mm. if, we, if we, can, we can establish that it's possible, I think that that can really set us up for the future. Yeah, and look, that's something obviously that BZD's you know put out the high speed rail plan yeah. a couple of years back, and um, it's so imperative that we you know transition so much of the transport sector to renewable sources, mm. uh, and you know that particularly that Sydney Melbourne route is mm. one of the most trafficked you know busiest routes in the world, and high speed rail pretty much works. Most other places, doesn't it, pretty successfully, and um, we're kind of way behind the ball game and um, on that front. But uh, for sure, good to get the metro system up and running anyway on renewables. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I guess that's kind of um, where sustainable cities and this new initiative at um, Friends of Earth has um, started from, looking at transport emissions, and Mm -hmm. that they're you know the second biggest here in Victoria and fastest growing and. And so, yeah, what what conversation are we having about what does that look like? How do we, um, you know, eventually want to transition to zero emissions? So how do we do that? And, and um, you know, trains and public transport are part of that. But, you know, what else needs to happen around, you know, high-speed rail and, you know, intercity and regional connections as well? Um, but, yeah, to begin with, we're getting started talking just about Melbourne um, and, and what's needed to, um, yeah, set, it up, set us up for... 
um, yeah, getting to zero emissions. <laughs> yep. And what sort of are you at the stage where you're starting to get any sort of government feedback, or a bit early for that yet, or? Um, for the renewable powertrains campaign. Yeah. yeah, so we've had discussions mm-hmm. um, with some members of government uh, and I think that there is quite a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just last week we've... we um, There's a, a somewhat obscure um, parliamentary process called the Public Accounts and Estimates Committee, uh, or PAYEC, which is where ministers get grilled about their expenditure in the budget. Uh, and at that committee meeting last week... Um, Energy Minister D'Ambrosio um, was fronting the committee, mm-hmm. and and yeah, we had um, Fiona Patton from the Reason Party quizzing the minister about the electricity usage of the train network because mm-hmm. she was basically making the same connection. Like, you know, you've got the tr- the solar powered trams. What about the train system? So mm-hmm. that debate is starting to occur in in the in the public political sphere, which is really exciting. So I'm hoping that you know. If we can build up some community pressure and some excitement about this idea, I think that it is a really winnable, um, really winnable campaign. Because, uh, yeah, who who wouldn't want to be the the person to cut the ribbon on the first renewable powered train system in Australia? That's I yeah. think that's a bit of a, yeah, just a really exciting idea. It is, and there's kind of you know these things really. Well, if you put the fossil fuel lobby aside. It's really a win-win. You know, like you say, who wouldn't want to do that? What politician wouldn't want mm. to do that? You're actually getting a cleaner system in the built-up urban areas, mm. but the power to generate these type of projects mm. is in uh, regional areas where mm. maybe, the, you know, there's been drought or mm. there's been other kind of things which are, um, you know, had a negative impact on those yeah. communities. And here you go building something that yeah. is clean, it's green, local jobs. Mm. Um, it's It's kind of a pretty... Good story, good news story, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, think of the legacy. Like, at the moment, the thing that you hear is, uh, you know, many decades ago we built the coal-fired power stations and that's what's powered our city and built our economy. It, it can be the same with renewable energy. You know, I, I hope that people who are who are hosting these projects on their on their um, on their farmland can actually be proud of the fact that we are actually powering the modern inf- infrastructure mm. to make a city work. Like that is pretty incredible. Um, but we're doing it for renewable energy, not with fossil fuels. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and probably you know, um, I mean, obviously there's other factors that come into it, but you hope that there's kind of um, can be sometimes going into those communities that have been adversely affected mm. by, um, you know, the closure of, of lots of these old fossil fuel plants, um, that whether it's with retraining or just, just general employment in those regions. Mm. Um, can, because, unfortunately, so much of that closure has not happened in a stage transitional way where people mm. have had the ability to kind of get long lead time. Um, mm. So, you know, we, we want to, as much as we want a, a fast transition to 100% renewables, mm. we also want to see those people in those communities affected mm. um, taken into account. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's about, you know, having having a plan and seizing control of the situation. Um, particularly, you know, it's it's government's role to do this because if we just leave it to the privatised mm. system, we are going to have to pick up the pieces. So um, the best way to do that is to really seize the opportunities and invest in training and, and make long-term targets and, and really build this new industry and create opportunities for people in old industries to get involved. Um, but yeah, those, like that is why we've campaigned on renewables. And so I think that we want to sort of bring that same energy to um, to the transport issue. And we, yeah. you know, so yes, renewables. We are almost acting like as a bit of a um, a gateway drug, so to speak, <laughs> to the issue of. Um, um, don't quote me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, to the issue of transport emissions. And so, um, as Rachel mentioned, um, transport emissions, the second second largest source of emissions, fastest growing. Mm. We think this is a, one simple way mm. um, that we can begin to have a conversation about this. So, you know, at the moment, everybody's talking about energy. Um, but we have the solutions to that. It's renewables. Yep. It's wind, solar, battery storage, and the electricity system. Like, the politics is hard, but the engineering solution is simple yeah so you know transport as a whole is a wholly different question and i think that's why yeah the work of sustainable cities is really interesting and um well let's talk a bit more about that rachel and so Mm. so what are the main things that you're working on at the moment 
Yeah, so we kind of kicked off last year um, coming into the space. There's um, Melbourne is rapidly growing and there's um, a lot of, you know, congestion on our roads and, you know, crowding on our trains and trams. I don't know if you um, catch public transport, but, yeah, just constantly hearing the frustrations from people about, I don't know where to turn because, you know, mm. everyone's got to move around the city and get where they need to be and, you know, want to spend time doing the things that they want to be doing. Mm. Um, and, yeah, there's big projects on the table. You know, we kind of um, saw last election the East-West Link dumped and big um, public transport initiatives like the Metro Tunnel and level crossing removals that, yeah, just increase the capacity of our rail network. Um, but then at the same time, we've had more big road, bigger and bigger roads kind of put on the table all across the city, um, be it, you know, out west or up in the northeast. And, um, yeah, local communities saying, well, we don't think that this is the solution. This isn't the technology and the um, the kind of infrastructure that we want for the future. Um, and and this year we've really kind of worked with those communities to develop, well, if that's not what we want, what do what we do, want? Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's one thing to say we don't want this, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, lots of time, particularly when you're dealing with government, you kind of need to work on the solutions yeah. and go, we don't want this, but here's a f- plan that we've developed to show you what we do want. Exactly. So that, you know, you can kind of be moving forward and not always negative. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. And it's kind of, um, you know, for decades, you know, we've lived in um, cities that have been dominated by car infrastructure. And so for many people, it's it's tricky to even think about what mm. other options are there. Um, but here in Melbourne, we've got access to some of the the world leading um, transport experts and academics and and um, different planners who who do have lots of these ideas. And so it's about how do we unlock that potential yeah. and give communities those local solutions. Um, and um, and really important as well in in these new communities because you know you get these mm. big you know land subdivisions and these whole new developments you know, multi, yeah. multi neighborhoods yeah and they go in all the housing lots go in but they're kind of dormitory areas because well, there's like not what, the infrastructure there's not mm. the transport and all the other services yeah. that they need you know mm. where are the schools you know how mm. how far are you going to have to be traveling to get your kids to school or mm. go to the hospital or go to the yeah. shops you know and and those communities and the, you know the developers it's a real car mindset it's like mm. going in your car yeah you know as opposed to you know cycling or public transport or things like that so yeah kind of having to influence those big planning issues yeah um, because these you know they don't happen overnight either so yeah getting ahead of that curve um and melbourne is growing so quickly um and doesn't really have the same geographical boundaries or that Mm. say a city like sydney does we've got the ocean on one side and you've got the blue mountains on the other side i mean melbourne's kind of got this land mass that's just keeping on pushing out isn't it yeah and we've got lots of valuable land around us that you know for farming that we Mm. you know Let's use land as, you know, the best that we can. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, so it, like, brings up lots of questions, not only about, yeah, like, how are we planning our city, but, yeah, we're really looking at the transport um, kind of um, sustainable cities could go in lots of directions mm-hmm. um, and in an era of, that we can actually have some impact. And when we've got this clear kind of choice at the moment with these mega roads, um, toll roads and, um, you know, being pushed by private companies and the mm-hmm. road lobby, or we could, you know, make a different choice and actually invest some serious money in not just big infrastructure, but also the services and, you know, the bus connections that we've got to them and um, active mm. travel so that people can, you know, yeah. actually be create healthier local communities where they can get to the shops and um, walk their kids to school or ride their bike. Um, and, and part of... Um, so all this is kind of part of the plan that we've been putting together. And again, another part that comes up is jobs that you know we can be building this stuff and creating the jobs local jobs here in victoria and um we're seeing out in the um like the troy valley you know workers being retrained to build these high capacity trains and mm. electric buses and um all those kind of skills that are quite transferable and you know um skilling people up to to yeah create this technology for, that we've already got that we um yeah it could be just um uh, really ramping up here in Melbourne. And it's really interesting because, you know, there's all this pressure and we see congestion and all this, but I saw a um, presentation recently of a guy and oh, I can't 
think who his name is, but he was a bit of a futurist mm-hmm. and was kind of talking about the fact that things like individual car ownership is not necessarily, it's a concept we've had for a long mm-hmm. time, but that that's going to change and the mm-hmm. way we live is going to change. And so, you know, we're putting the, this, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into, you know, motorways or whatever it might be. But when you look at, you know, the way things have changed around, um, you know, something like Airbnb, well, that's sort of the biggest holder of property now in the world. Mm. And who, you know, 10 years ago would have thought that? I mean, um, you know, everyone knew names like Hilton and Hyatt and things mm. like that if you were going on holiday yeah. somewhere. But now you've got something that didn't even exist. And so mm. when we think of some of those transitions, which have have, have kind of been so quick in some senses, um, you've got to kind of think, well, all right, what is transport going to look mm. like in mm. 15, 20 years? Mm. Is yeah. everyone going to have a car? Mm. You know, car share, um, share ownership schemes and yeah. things like this make sense. And it's really interesting because, you know, one of the other segments we're doing later in the show, talking about the um, around Australia electric highway that um, mm. has just kind of gone into place and... and um, with that sort of thing, you know, one of the barriers people thinking about buying an EV is, you know, around range anxiety and, oh, you know, that time I want to jump in the car and drive a thousand kilometres. <laughs> but how often does that happen? And, you know, this is what people have got mm. to kind of change their mindset yeah. and think, well, really, 95% of the time I drive or I transport myself in whatever mm. way it is I do 15 kilometres a day round yeah. trip or, or 30 kilometres round trip. But we kind of, our buying habits don't really reflect how we truly live, whereas you think, well, really, mm-hmm. all I need is a, a mode of transport that will do that. Mm-hmm. And those times that I will need to drive six, 800 kilometres, I rent a car mm-hmm. or, or I, yeah. I get on a high-speed train or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. But it's, kind of, it's pretty hard to get people out of that mm-hmm. sort of mindset. Yeah, about having choices mm. is what I think it kind of comes down to, and mm. and that there's a role. There are times when people, um, and you know, certainly some professions really rely on um, individual vehicles. Yeah, you know, our emergency services. I would gladly want them to get where they need to be as quick as they can. Yeah, and so how do we free up that space for? forget the people that need that road space and and yeah give other people choices other options to get where they need to go as quickly and you know comfortably as as they can um yeah i think for many decades we've been yeah kind of led down this path that Mm, everyone needs a single individual vehicle and yeah um i think it's a real almost a challenge around um yeah the individualistic kind of way that we mm. think about how we want to move and um you know public transit only works because many people agree you know the train is all going to leave at this time and we're going to use it um and you know how can we create a system that um yeah works for everyone and um anyone can access you know if they if they need to yeah exactly well, look, we're probably coming, um, uh, starting to run out of time. Um, but look, it's been great to hear what you're doing and we'd be really keen to follow up on that, um, and with the train, um, campaign as well. Mm. So, you know, if people are listening and they think, I really want to get behind that, how mm-hmm. can they engage? So, um, as I mentioned before, we have just launched a crowdfunder for the campaign to power Melbourne's trains with renewables. So, um, if you, I can send you the link, but I'll just read it out very quickly. It's, you can find out more at chuffed.org slash project slash renewable trains for Melb. And that's the number four. The number four. Okay. Uh, if you make a, a small donation, that will go a long way to making this um, a campaign that we can actually set up and run and win this outcome. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, great to talk to you both. And um, we'll look forward to st- keeping in touch. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. Cyclones is pretty grim. Shocking. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally.
Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show and um, we've done a bit of a feature in the past around electric vehicles and it's something that I'm particularly passionate about and it was actually one of the first shows that I ever did. We looked, um, uh, we did a feature particularly on electric vehicle infrastructure and um, at the time we talked to um, a gentleman by the name of Tim Harrison who was working in Queensland for the government in the rollout of the... Um, electric um, charging infrastructure that was happening in Queensland. Now, I'm really pleased, you know, we're probably 12 months or more on from from that particular show um, to talk about a really exciting project uh, that is the Round Australia Electric Highway. And I'm really pleased to have on the line Richard McNeil. And Richard is the coordinator of the Round Australia Electric Highway, which is a collaboration between the Tesla Owners Club of Australia and the Australian Australian Electric Vehicle Association. So welcome, Richard, and we're really looking forward to hearing all about this project. Yeah, yeah, great to talk to you, Erin. So just give our listeners a little bit of a background as to how this came about and, um, you know, where it's up to today, because I know that there's been, you know, this month um, there's been a fair bit of information um, and, and you've got, looks like you've had some good media interest in the project. So just outline to our listeners what it is and, and kind of how, how it came to be. Well, um, some early electric vehicle owners um, started realising that you can actually charge electric vehicles off standard industrial power outlets. They're called three-phase outlets. The ones you find in showgrounds, they plug carnival rides into them, they plug catering things into them. And um, they're really quite good for electric vehicle charging, and there's quite a lot of them around Australia. So um, some some early pioneers, well, early is uh, you know, 2015, 2014, you know, it's not in the 19th century, but some early pioneers of the electric vehicle era had started doing some road trips down the east coast of Australia, and in particular from west from Perth across the Malabar and up to Broome, finding these outlets and starting to map them. And then the Electric Vehicle Association in Western Australia started actually paying for outlets to be installed in areas where there were none, and gradually routes began to develop. And uh, then the two clubs, you mentioned Tesla Owners Club for Australia and the Australian Electric Vehicle Association got together and decided to complete the whole route round Australia and then later to also do the route right through the centre, yeah, Alice Springs, Uluru, etc. So it, it, it sort of evolved out of something highly logical. And it's a medium-speed network, which means you can charge your car overnight or you can get another, you know, charge for a couple of hours and get another 100 or maybe 200 kilometres range to extend your day. And uh, it's perfectly adequate to get your car around Australia. And uh, so that's what we've done. Yeah, so this is, um, you know, because this is one of the um, barriers to adoption, isn't it, that a lot of people, you know, have this, and sometimes it's quite false, around, you know, range anxiety. So really, you guys have gone out there and said, well, let's show that this is possible. And as you say, you're using um, a technology that's actually already implemented, maybe in a different use in lots of industrial sites, but, but you're not reinventing the wheel, are you? No, no, it's quite good. You just you just need the adapter for that sort of thing, and one you adapted to plug your car into it and then once you've got it you you can virtually travel the whole country uh, yeah so it's quite a good thing and um, yeah so so also a lot of people that are travelling in Australia they're not doing it at high speed mm-hmm. so they can it, 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 you generally keep up with the flow of other vehicles that are travelling recreationally around Australia you really don't lose uh, any time Mm, that's right, and you know when most people are doing that kind of, as you say, that kind of journey, you know, it's about visiting and seeing those different attractions, and and so it's not like you're trying to get to A from A to B. It's not like a you know, transport driver or something like that. That's really you know time is of the imperative. Um, so this this network makes a lot of sense um, to do that. It, it's really interesting looking at uh, certainly at your the. Um, Tesla Owner Club website and some of the other media that's come out. You know, we're talking a massive difference from from seeing a map from only a couple of years ago to just recently. How much charging infrastructure is now in place? It's really, you know, quite amazing. Really, that transformation that's happened in a relatively short time. Yeah, and, and, and anyone can see the whole map. There's a, there's a website website called plugshare.com plugshare.com where where anyone 
electric vehicle owner or just anyone can, can log in and see all the electric charging outlets virtually in the world. It's an American site, but it's the one that Australians use. And you can see all the aspects, what type of what type of plug it is. You can filter the type of plugs for whatever you've got an adapter for. So it's, it, it's 100% publicly accessible. So, uh, yeah, yeah, people, anyone with an electric, anyone thinking of buying an electric car should, should look at it and think, oh, gee, should I get a car with just enough range to do it? And should I, uh, should I, yeah, get an adapter and have a holiday? Mm. So just outline for the listeners how this proposal or how, you know, this went in terms of who funded it, um, how, what, propositions were put to sites or potential sites. How, yeah. how did that come about? Well, it, it really is a combination of anything that we can get to work for any site. Um, original ones, you know, we, we, people just went to showgrounds because show, showgrounds typically would have maybe 20 of these outlets for all the rides and catering things and what have you. So uh, <clears throat> people would go to showgrounds and they, they would ask, yeah, do you mind we charge our electric vehicle there? And if it was a, like a local showground run by the local show committee, they'd more often say, yeah, just give us a donation and, uh, you know, plug in and go. And then gradually um, we'd say, look, to other sites, oh, we'll, supply the, we'll supply the outlet if you wire it in. And then in Western Australia, a couple of deals done with utilities, Synergy and Horizon Power, where, where, the, where the local Electric Vehicle Association branch got them to sponsor the outlets. Um, so that's a bit of everything. Sometimes the site owner will say, like the fellow in Tennant Creek, he says, oh, great, I like electric cars. I'll buy the outlet. I'll put it in. It'll be in by the time you get here. Yeah, so fantastic. Just any, anything that works, really. <laughs> so, so the offer to property owners um, mm-hmm. that the Tesla Owners Club and the Electric Vehicle Association... How was that funded? Was that from members? I mean, you mentioned Synergy, yeah. um, which is a WA power-owned corporation, um, did, did some support of that. But but how does that look in terms of, of the funding of, of what's gone into date and going forward? Is there still, um, now that you you know the, the map kind of has been filled, are you still looking for sites? Is there still an option for some sort of financial support um, for charging to go in on those sites? How is yeah. that looking going forward? Oh, well, well, we're still we're still looking for sites. We've we've got the thing, we've, we've got the round Australia route to to a maximum spacing of four hundred kilometres. We've only got four sites to go to get at a maximum spacing of three hundred, mm-hmm. which is actually even better than that because the average is only two hundred. The average spacing which is starting to get within the range of, all, of the new electric vehicles coming in. Yeah. So um, we're, we're looking to gradually narrow the gaps between sites. So, uh, and it's in, actually in New South Wales, the, uh, there is a, uh, there was a big, a decent donation, so we can start filling in stuff in New South Wales. So, so if you've got a site, that, especially if it's on a route that people can use, um, it'll give us a ring or give us a... Uh, it's, it, the the email address is charging at teslaowners.org.au. Uh, contact us and uh, and we'll see whether you fit in. Okay. And so when you say a site, just just give us an example of, of what a typical site or what a typical few sites are look like. Yeah, what a site is. That's a good question. A site could be a com- some form of accommodation because the, for electric vehicles, the best time to charge an electric vehicle is when you sleep. So, I mean, there's... You're sleeping, you don't care that it takes a while to charge an electric vehicle. Mm. So uh, accommodation, roadhouses even, there's lots of roadhouses out in the outback. Um, even cafes or places you might want to stay. Um, so just it, it, anywhere that fits in with, with, uh, with a road trip, or even if you're a nice person, you know, you've, got, you've, got a, uh, you've got a workshop with a three-phase outlet in it, you could, like some people have, they put it on Flagshare and say, or contact us and say, well, yeah, we'd quite like to have electric, we'd be very happy to have electric vehicles round and charged. Yeah, right. So so that could be sort of a, an engineering workshop or, a, um, you know, farm equipment or it could be anything, really, that, that has three-phase yeah. power. Yeah, yeah. More likely to be an engineering workshop mm. um, because, yeah, it's more likely to be in town and on the route. Um, 
But yeah, yeah, we, we uh, that's, that's, and, 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 and likely, you know, people more likely to be able to walk to the shops and do something, perhaps while it's charging for a couple of hours, have some lunch or whatever. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so again, it's really quite a flexible thing, and you see these outlets in all sorts of locations, um, you know, around the back of somewhere or, um, you know, the, the main, the main thing about this rollout is to get the roof up and running right now. Mm. So it's not an over-polished grand scheme, it's, but, it, but, it's, but it's a real and workable outlet that you can, uh, outlet, roof that you can travel. And in mm. fact, there is, there is a lady, there's only three days off finishing around Australia trip on this route right now. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I noticed on your on your website you've you've um, you're documenting the first hundred um, trips to be done, um, which uh, must be how how far away from getting to the hundred are you? Well, there's three electric vehicles that have driven to Australia now. Hopefully on Thursday, if Sylvia doesn't have any misadventure between now and Thursday, there'll be four. Mm-hmm. Now they're all blue, so we're after some non-blue electric <laughs> vehicles to drive around Australia as well. And it's, I believe you were the first one to do it in, um, in your vehicle, which I think is called Tessie, am I correct? Yeah, I, I was the first production electric vehicle. Right. And the first person to do it without carrying a generator along. Uh-huh. So um, <clears throat> so I think I was the first to do it on you know, the proper way, but, you know, if they could... They, there was a fellow, a heroic fellow, back in 2011 who did it. You know, with a support vehicle, but he did it. So I'm not going to uh, be too critical of him. Yeah, well, it, you know, it just shows that, that people wanted to keep pushing that envelope with the, the technology that was available to them at the time. Um, so we've yeah. spoken about, you know, the fact that. Um, you know, there's still a, a, some that are 400 kilometres, but, but there's more that are 300, and really the majority are only within 200 kilometres of each other. But yeah. can you detail where are the specific geographical areas that, um, you know, they're more plentiful or less plentiful? I mean, probably a bit obvious some of those more out-of-the-way places, but where are there yeah. holes that we're, you know, kind of trying to fill in a bit more? Well, um, there, there are, um, yeah, there's some of the... Very outback Queensland highways and Northern Territory and, and perhaps up the centre. There, 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 are, there are a few places where there's a 400 kilometre gap or close to 400 kilometre gap. And, and we, and, but on the other hand, um, but we reckon that we'll have it very, very soon down to 300 and that's quite doable for a lot, for a lot of electric vehicles, especially the new ones coming out. Because all you have to do to get to get an extra 50% of range, all you have to do is slow down a bit. Mm. Like, now, you could slow down from 110 down to 80. Doesn't, doesn't sound like much. And, and you get heaps more range. So, mm. um, yeah, these distances are going to, and as, as, as shorter range, sorry, longer range electric vehicles come out and we gradually get the gaps down, there's going to be a lot of people doing it. Yeah. And it's important for people to know that um, this is not just for Tesla vehicles. This is a, uh, a technology and a scheme that you put in that's open to all vehicles, isn't it? That's right. You've just got to get you've just got to get a cable that that connects onto it. You, you've got to get the, a three-phase cable, mm-hmm. right, obviously, and um, then you can then any electric vehicle can plug into it because uh, all electric vehicles can charge from mains power, and it's. And uh, it can charge electric vehicles at over 100 kilometres of charge for every hour of charging, but it's dependent on the amount of charge rate the vehicle can accept. So, so it's got a maximum of over 100, but it's, it, it, whatever the vehicle can accept within that is uh, is what it gets. But, but it's every electric vehicle. Mm. So, uh, and and um, yeah, every every uh, the first hundred. Uh, electric vehicles around Australia get a nice certificate from us and, um, and get on the list. So we want to motivate people. Now we've, now landowners have gone to the trouble of creating the route to, to actually use it to, uh, yeah, to, and completely dispel the myths about electric cars. Yeah. So that website that people can look at is, um, it's called plugshare.com. Plugshare, yeah. It's yeah. that point is, is a, uh, is one of the is a service provider and and and, and their their sites are on there, but 
but plug share has all the sites. Yeah, so that so that is um, has all the sites available. So that's that's kind of the central one for people to go to, so that they're going to see everything, isn't it? Yeah, if you've got a Tesla, it shows all the Tesla ones. If, yeah, and, and and then people can put new ones on when they discover it. You, you can log in there. Uh, it's, it's a it's a it's a user based program. Right. Okay. So people can can, can um, add to that, and then they just need to be verified or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Well, it soon becomes uh, very clear if, if if one appears not to be there, then, then you just report it, and uh, the administrators back in America say, "Hmm," and uh, and it vanishes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so it's quite a good. Uh, like it's a it's quite a good community based website. Yeah. And uh, yeah, certainly the only one you pretty well need if you if you're out and about. Yeah. Now, I think one of the really important things for that's come out of this project, and I'm interested to hear what sort of feedback you've had, particularly from from government and in general. Um, you know, it seemed reading through some of the material on the website, and uh, is that what your, the two organisations wanted to do was actually show that this is a revolution that people are leading and they really want the government to see that and to step up. Um, and by rolling this out, because, you know, when, when I was talking about this, um, as I say, you know, probably 18-odd months ago now, and certainly Queensland was taking a lead and have done some great things there with what they've done and, the, and you know, Tesla was working on their specific charging network. But, you know, it was still pretty sparse and... Um, this is one of the things that, uh, you know, people that are maybe not wanting to see the continued development and, and rollout of um, EVs and, and the, the transformation of a transport sector, which is absolutely essential to tackling climate change, um, keep putting this up. But really that, that argument's on pretty weak ground now, isn't it? It's on pretty weak ground. And uh, governments and other people putting these, their charging routes in. Generally, ones put in by the government over a, half, a higher charging speed than the one we're put, ones we're putting in. Mm. And, uh, but it, it actually helps because if you've got a medium-speed network around Australia, then as you build high-speed um, charging points at various places, at least they're fitting into, an, at least they're fitting into a, a route rather than having to wait till they're all built before there is a route, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, be- so it makes it just more viable to put in the faster charge scheme that is already a route, and the faster charge is just accelerating it rather than waiting till it all complete. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, so yeah. Um, well, I congratulate you guys on doing this. It's a fantastic initiative, and like you say, you know, it's about creating a route that can be driven right now. And um, you've proved that, and it's great to see that so many different sites around the country have come on board to make this a possibility. And um, it'll be great to, uh, you know, see that number continue to tick up of um, documenting and. and Certifying those first hundred uh, round Australia trips, so it's a it's a great initiative, and um, it's I'd, I'd hope to see that you know those gaps can continue to be filled in. But as we know, there's um, we spoke to uh, listeners a little while ago about um, a piece of information, a, a presentation that was on the fully charged YouTube channel, which you're probably mm-hmm. familiar with. Uh, which was a UK-based, and I think it came out back in February sometime. But basically, and I think it was with the CEO of ChargePoint, but looking at what the barriers to EV adoption are and at what points in time they will become a non-issue. And it was really, I've encouraged a lot of people to look at it because it was really broke down what those barriers were and and just showed the logic of, of when they become a redundant argument. And it's not very far away at all. And look, that's in the UK, so probably you can add a bit of time, Nina, here in Australia. Um, but really, we're not, you know, we're not decades and decades away. Um, we're, you know, really a lot closer than a lot of people think. So this yeah. is a f- fantastic initiative to kind of keep pushing that along. Yeah, well, the, bar- the barriers are less than less than people think mm. really once you've got an electric vehicle you end up being a very happy person so the barriers are only to buying it in that the, there's not a great range of pure electric vehicles now but in the next year there's a whole flood coming out um, the Tesla Model 3 not, 
not super expensive. There's a Jaguar we've just heard of. Mm. There's two from Hyundai, including a four-wheel drive. Um, and, and, and on the list goes. So soon there'll be plenty of choice and the prices will be nudging down. Um, yeah, so we'll see plenty of, uh, plenty of them round. Yeah, no, it'd be fantastic, and it will be. I think we'll, the, you know, the landscape will be very much different, even within, you know, the next two or three years. So it's, it's um, much like we've seen this this great change in the number of charges just over the last two or three years. We're going to see that in models as well. So it's great. Yep, m- most definitely. Yeah. Well, look, Richard. Um, I know that you, you know you've done this in um, in a voluntary capacity, and a whole lot of other people have been involved. So congratulations to everyone involved, and um, to those other organisations that have you know helped support support it as well and make it a reality. So it's wonderful, and um, it's going to be a real great assistance in uh, having more people adopt EVs and um, seeing that there isn't a barrier to you know, long distance travel. Yes, and, and driving the whole zero emissions thing. Yeah, exactly. Right, well, great, Richard. It's um, it's wonderful to have a chat and um, keep in touch with us and let us know what other initiatives are on the horizon. Okay. Yeah. Thanks very much, Erin. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Uh, and as you know, Beyond Zero Emissions is a climate think tank who looks at um, technical and solutions about how the economy can be moved to 100% renewable energy. But one of the things that's really important in the, in the broader climate action and climate fight is that we cannot have any more, any new fossil fuel infrastructure happen. It's imperative that we start moving away quickly as possible. And to that point, um, we've got Louise Page on the line, and Louise is part of the Save Western Port group, and we just want to highlight this um, local issue that's going on. So welcome, Louise, and can you tell us what the um, what's going on in the Western Port area? Sure, thanks, Erin. There's a proposal by AGL to install a floating storage and regasification unit um, known as an FSIU at the jetty at Crib Point. What they want to do is import LNG from around the world, bring it into their their moored ship, the FSIU. They transfer the gas, transfer the gas, and then it is sent by pipeline to Pakenham. So it involves also building a pipeline from Crip Point to Pakenham, which is approximately 55 kilometres, going through farmland and. Um, Agricultural businesses, etc. So both both projects have a big impact. It's not just about Western Port; it's also about all the land in between. Yeah, right. And uh, I mean, in a time that um, you know we need to be moving to one hundred percent renewables, it's we don't need. You know, the, the argument is, oh, you know, gas is a transition fuel, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and it, it's nonsense. We can't afford a transition fuel, and, and really, gas doesn't represent that anyway. Because you know we've done a lot of research looking at the, when you look at the total life cycle of gas, um, it doesn't make sense, and especially when you take into things like like fugitive emissions. But, but this facility, we're not looking at international gas coming into the country as well, aren't we? Well, it's the, it's the whole system is so dysfunctional; it's absurd. Because actually, what has happened is that all our gas. Even aside from the whole renewable argument, it's just, it is so dysfunctional. If you're writing a business plan and somebody said, look, this is how we'll do it, we'll sell our gas overseas and then we'll bring it back in and sell it to Australians. It it is so ludicrous and it's because, the way I see it, and this is very much my own personal opinion, that we have corporations running this country the government really doesn't listen to the community, what anybody else wants. It's just the corporations. Um, so AGL and others have exported their gas and now they're bringing it back in. And one of the sort of phrases that they like to use is uh, energy security for everybody. It's going to put downward pressure on prices. It's always the same lingo. You know, they've done the same in New South Wales. It just, it goes on and on and on. And there is nobody who's stopping and saying, we need to have a, a look at the whole energy plan because it is not working. 
Exactly, and we've talked about that quite a bit on the show with um, different experts. Um, and, you know, when we look at the supposed National Energy Plan being the National Energy Guarantee, it's it's really a, um, a bit of a thought bubble in terms of policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in terms then of what's going on locally, how can people get involved? What are the actions... What's, what's actually yep. happening in that local yep. area? Yeah, we've, we've got quite a lot going on. We've actually only been formed, it's around about six weeks now, so we've uh, been working really hard because the, the consultation process that AGL are supposed to be doing as part of their referral of the whole proposal to the government is to show that they've done public consultation, community consultation. And... There are so many people that still don't know what's going on. There's a lot of confusion between the Kawasaki project, which is at the port of Hastings, which is turning coal into hydrogen, you know, bringing it from Loyang to Hastings and shipping it to Japan. That's a whole other issue. So there's a lot of confusion because people don't understand that they're, they're two very different projects. Um, and the more we talk to people, the more we find out people don't know anything. So we have a... We've developed a, a web page, which is very much a work in progress still, called Save Western Port. And we so have, what is the address on that? So that's savewesternport.org. Okay. And we also have a Facebook page. Oh, I, I might just tell you what, to sort of make it a bit easier, I'll tell you what we've got and then I can give you the, the details. So we've got um, two Facebook pages, actually. One's a, a closed group. So for people who want to be part of the, the sort of core group developing things, and then there's the general public page. And we're, one of our key things is that we're holding a rally on the 1st of July at 1pm at Hastings Foreshore to send a really clear message to government, to our Mornington Peninsula Shire Council, to everybody that this is not what the community wants. So we've got some really good support from other groups like Environment Victoria and Friends of the Earth. So we'll have some speakers there from those bodies talking about energy in general. Um, And one of the fun things about it is that we're going to uh, mobilise the people or move the people into the shape of an FSIU, which is nearly 300 metres long and 45 metres wide. It's It's a big vessel. Um, so we want to give some people the idea of how that... The scale of what, what they're looking at. Yes, that's right. Yep. Right. Because it's... Um, it's uh, we haven't been given a mock-up by AGL, so people ha- have got no visual context of, of what it looks like in situ. Okay. Look, we haven't so got a lot of time, Louise. Yep. So, sure. so, so for listeners, that's a rally on the 1st of July at Hastings for sure. And yes. they can look at your um, website, which just tell us that website address again. Sure, savewesternport.org. And there's also a Facebook site, and, yeah, and what's the best yes. search term to find that? Yep, so the, the Facebook is a little bit more complicated, the public one, because it's no AGL terminus for Crib Point. Right. All right, well, I'm sure if people um, get on the website anyway, they can be redirected to yes. one yep. or the other. that's right. Yeah, because there's Twitter and Instagram too, but, you know, all that they can find by going to savewesternport.org. Okay, so that's savewesternport.org. Um, it's really important that, uh, as I said at the start, um, renewable energy is where we need to be going. We don't need... Um, you know, more gas infrastructure because this infrastructure goes in and for anyone that, you know, runs a household, runs a business, you don't set these things up for the short term. This is a no. major inf- piece of infrastructure that they're putting in and yes. we can't afford, from from certainly a climate point of view, to be putting in new fossil fuel infrastructure which has got a, you know, a time horizon of decades. It's, we've got exactly. to go to renewables. Yep. Look, thanks, Louise. Um, keep in touch and let us know what's what's going on and um, best of success with that rally on the 1st of July in Hastings. Thanks so much. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
So that brings us to the top of the hour, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Um, I've been your host, Erin Jones, and uh, we've covered a bit of ground today on the Beyond Zero Emissions show from uh, electrifying the train system to a massive increase in charge points for electric vehicles. And finally, they're looking at some local issues in the Western Port area in Victoria. So I hope you've enjoyed the show. Um, I'll look forward to talking to you again. Vivian's back on the air next week. For those that have made pledges to Radiothon, please get that money in so that we can issue, um, also 3CR can get the receipts issued in time for the financial year, 30th of June, and you can claim that as a deductible expense. Um, and we're still, uh, you know, taking more donations. We need all the support we can get, but we do appreciate those people that have already done that. So thanks very much for listening, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil-fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, Zero Emissions Exports and Industry, Zero Emissions Transport, Zero Emissions Buildings, and Zero Emissions Land Use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au. Or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.